Section number six of Canada, the Empire of the North. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Canada, the Empire of the North by Agnes C. Lott. From 1607 to 1635. Part two. The Laurentian hills now roll from the river in purpling folds like fields of heather. The Gatineau is passed, winding in on the right through dense forests. On the left, flowing through the rolling sand hills and joining the main river just where the waters fall over a precipice in a cataract of spray, is the Rideau River with its famous falls resembling the white folds of a wind-blown curtain. Then the voyagers have swept round that wooded cliff known as Parliament Hill, jutting out in the river, and there breaks on view a wall of water hurling down in shimmering floods at the Chaudier Falls. The high cliff to the left and concurrent from the falls swirl the canoes over to the right side to the sandy flats where the lumber piles to-day defile the river here boats are once more hauled up for portage a long portage nine miles all the way to the modern town of almer where the river becomes as wide as a lake lake du chen of the oak forests here camp for the night was made, and leaks in the canoes mended with resin, round fires gleaming red as an angry eye across the darkening waters, while the prowling wildcats and lynx, which later gave such good hunting in these forests that the adjoining rapids became known as the chats, sent their unearthly screams shivering through the darkness. Somewhere, Near Lumet Isle, Champlain came to an Indian settlement of the Ottawa tribe. He camped to ask for guides to go on. Old Chief Tessouet holds solemn powwow, passing the peace pipe round from hand to hand in silence before the warriors rise to answer Champlain. Then, with the pompous gravity of Abraham dickering with the desert tribes, they warn Champlain it is unsafe to go farther. Beyond the Ottawa is the Nipsing, where dwell the sorcerer Indians, a treacherous people. Beyond the Nipsing is the great fresh-water sea of the Hurons. They will grant Champlain canoes, but warn him against a trip. Later the interpreter comes with word they have changed their minds. Champlain must not go on. It is too dangerous. Attack would involve war. What? demanded Champlain, rushing in the midst of the council tent. To not go? Why, my young man here, pointing to Vinot, has gone to that country and found no danger. What Vinot thought at that stage is not told. The Indians turn on him in fury. Nicholas, did you say you had visited the Nipsings? Vinot hems and haws and stammers, yes. Liar, roars the chief. You slept here every night, and if you went to the Nipsings, you went in a dream. Then to Champlain, let him be tortured. Champlain took the fellow 
to his own tent. Vinot reiterated his story. Champlain took him back to the council. The Indians jeered his answers and tore the story he told to tatters, showing Champlain how utterly wrong Vinot's descriptions were. That night, on promise of forgiveness, Vinot fell on his knees and confessed the imposture to Champlain. When the fur canoes came down the Ottawa to trade at Montreal, Champlain accompanied them to the St. Lawrence and sailed for France. His exploration had been an ignominious failure. Champlain was ever knight of the cross as well as explorer. He longed with the zeal of a missionary to reclaim the Indians from savagery, and at last raised funds in France to pay the expense of bringing four or five recollects, a branch of the Franciscan friars, to Quebec in May of 1615. With the peaked hood thrown back, the gray garb roped in at the waist, the bare feet protected only by heavy sandals, the recollects landed at Quebec, and with cannon booming, white men all on bended knee held service before the amazed savages. Of the Recollects, it was agreed that Joseph Le Caron should go west to the Hurons of the Sweetwater Sea, accompanied by a dozen Frenchmen. The friar ascended the Ottawa in July, passed the Illumet Island, where Vinot's lie had been confessed, and proceeded westward to the land of the Hurons. Nine days later Champlain followed with two canoes, ten Indians, and a ten brule, his interpreter. In order to hold the everlasting loyalty of the Hurons and Algonquins in Canada, Champlain had pledged them that the French would join their 2,500 warriors in a great invasion of the Iroquois to the south. It was to be a war not of aggression but of defense, for the five nations of the Iroquois in New York State had harried the Canadian tribes like wolves raiding a sheep pen. No Frenchman cultivating his farm patch on the St. Lawrence was safe from ambuscade, no hunter afield secure from a chance war party. Any tourist crossing Canada today can trace Champlain's voyage, where the rolling tide of the Ottawa forks at Mattawa, there comes in on the west side through dense forests and cedar swamps a river amber-colored with the wood mold of centuries. This is the Mattawa. Up the Mattawa Champlain pushed his canoes westward, up the shining flood of the Yellow River as gold where the waters shallow above the pebble bottom. Then the gravel grated keels. The shallows became weed-grown swamps that entangled the paddles and hid voyageur from voyageur in reeds the height of a man and presently a portage over rocks, slippery as ice leads, to a stream flowing westward, opening on a low-lying clay-colored lake, the country of the Nipsings, with whom Champlain pauses to feast and hear tales of witchcraft and demon lore that gave them the name of sorcerers. In a few sleeps, they tell him, he will reach the Sweetwater Sea, the news is welcome, for the voyageurs are down to short rations, 
and launched eagerly westward on the stream draining Nipson Lake, French River. This is a tricky little stream in whose sands lie buried the bodies of countless French voyageurs. It is more dangerous going with rapids than against them, for the hastening current is sometimes an undertow which sweeps the canoes into the rapids before the roar of the waterfall has given warning, and the country is barren of game. As they cross the portages, Champlain's men are glad to snatch at the raspberry and cranberry bushes for food, and their nighttime meal is dependent on chance fishing. Indian hunters are met, three hundred of them, the staring hares, so named from the upright posture of their headdress tipped by an eagle quill, and again Champlain is told is very near the inland sea. It comes as discoveries nearly always come. His finding of the Great Lakes, for though Joseph Le Caron, the missionary, had passed this way ten days ago, the zealous priest never paused to explore and map the region. You are paddling down the brown, foreshadowed waters, long lanes of water, like canal through walls of trees, silent as sentinels. Suddenly a change almost imperceptible comes. Instead of the earthy smell of the forest mold in your nostrils is the clear tang of sun-bathed, water-washed rocks, and the sky begins to swim, to lose itself at the horizon. There is no sudden bursting of a sea on your view. The river begins to coil in and out among islands. The amber waters have become sheeted silver. You wind from island to island, islands of pink granite, islands with no tree but one lone blasted pine, islands that are in themselves forests. There is no end to these islands. They are not in hundreds, they are in thousands. Then you see the spray breaking over the reefs, and there is a skyline. You are not on a river at all. You are on an inland sea. You have been on the lake for hours. One can guess how Champlain's men scrambled from island to island and fished for the rock bass above the deep pools and ran along the waterline of wave-dashed reefs, wondering vaguely if the wind-wash were the ocean tide of the western sea. But Champlain's Huron guides had not come to find a western sea. With the quick choppy stroke of the Indian paddler, they were conveying him down that eastern shore of Lake Huron, now known as Georgian Bay, from French River to Perry Sound, and Midland and Pentang. Where these little towns today stand on the hillsides was a howling wilderness of forest, with never a footprint but the zigzagging trail of the Indians back from Georgian Bay to what is now Lake Simcoe. Between these two shores lay the stamping grounds of the great Huron tribe. How numerous were they? Records differ certainly at no time more numerous than thirty thousand souls all told including children though they yearly came to montreal for trade and war 
the Hurons were sedentary, living in the long houses of bark enclosed by triple palisades, such as Cartier had seen at Hochelaga almost a century before. Champlain followed his supple guides along the wind-fallen forest trail to the Huron villages. Here he found the missionary. One can guess how the souls of these two heroes burned as a deep solemn chant to the Te Deum for the first time rolled through the forests of Lake Huron. But now Champlain must to business, and his business is war. Brule and twelve Indians are sent like the carriers of a fiery cross in the highlands of Scotland to rally tribes of the Susquehanna to join the Hurons against the Iroquois. A wild war dance is held with the mystic rites of the lodges of the Hurons, and the braves set out with Champlain from St. Simcoe for Lake Ontario by way of Trent River. As they near the, what is now New York State, buckskin is flung aside, the naked bodies painted and greased, and the trail shunned for the pathless woods off the beaten track where the Indian glide like beasts of prey through the frost-tinted forest. The October ninth, they suddenly come on some anacondas fishing, and they begin torturing their captives by cutting off a girl's finger when Champlain commands them to desist. Presently the forest opens to a farm clearing where the Iroquois are harvesting their corn. Spite of all Champlain could do, the wild Hurons uttered their war cry and rushed the field, but the Iroquois turned on the rabble and drove them back to the woods. Champlain was furious. They should have waited for Brule to come with their allies, and the foolish attack had only served to forewarn the enemy. He frankly told the Hurons if they were going to fight under his command, they must fight as white men fight, and he set them to building a platform from which marksmen could shoot over the walls of the Iroquois town. But the admonitions fell on frenzied ears. No sooner was the command to advance given than the Hurons broke from cover like maniacs, easy marks for the javelin throwers inside the walls, and hurled themselves against the Iroquois palisades in blind fury, making more din with yelling than woe with shots. Boiling water poured from the galleries inside, drove the braves back from the walls, and poisoned barb of the Iroquois arrows pursued their flight. A score fell wounded, among them Champlain with an arrow in his kneecap. The flight became panic, fast and furious, with the wounded carried on wicker stretchers whose every jolt added agony to pain. As for Brule, he arrived with the alleys only to find that the Hurons had fled, and here was he, alone in a hostile land with Iroquois warriors rampant as molested wasps. In the swift retreat off the trail, Brule lost his way. He was without food or powder, and had to choose between starvation or surrender to the Iroquois. Throwing down his weapons, he gave himself up to what he knew would be a certain torture. 
He had winced or whined as they tore the nails from his fingers and the hair from his head. The Iroquois would probably have brained him on the spot for a poltroon, but the young man, bound to a stake, pointed to a gathering storm as sign of heaven's displeasure. The high spirit pleased the Iroquois. They unbound him and took him with them in their wanderings for three years. The Hurons had promised to convey Champlain back down the St. Lawrence to Quebec, but the defeat had caused loss of prestige. The man with the stick that thundered was no more invulnerable to wounds than they. They forgot their promises and invented excuses for not proceeding to Quebec. Champlain wintered with the hunters somewhere north of Lake Ontario and came down the Ottawa with fur canoes the next summer. He was received at Quebec as one risen from the dead. While Champlain had been exploring, New France had not prospered as a colony. Royal patron after royal patron sold the monopoly to fresh hands, and each new master appointed Champlain viceroy. The new fur trade merchants could pay forty per cent dividends, but could do nothing to advance settlement. Less than one hundred people made up the population of New France, and these were torn asunder by jealousies. Huguenot and Catholic were opposed, and when three Jesuits came to Quebec, Jesuits and Recollects distrusted each other. Madame Champlain joined her husband at Quebec in 1620 to stay for four years, and that same year Champlain built himself a new habitation, the famous castle of St. Louis, on the cliff above the first dwelling. Louis Herbert, the apothecary of Port Royal, is now a farmer close to the castle of Quebec, and the wife of Abraham Martin has given birth to the first white child born in New France. Now came a revolutionary change. Cardinal Richelieu was virtual ruler of France. He quickly realized that the monopolists were sucking the lifeblood of the colony in furs and were giving nothing in return to the country. In 1627, under the great cardinal's patronage, the company of 100 associates was formed. This company, any of the seaport traders could buy shares. Indeed, they were promised patent of nobility if they did buy shares. Exclusive monopoly of furs was given to the company from Florida to Labrador. In return, the associates were to send two ships yearly to Canada. Before 1643, they were to bring out 4,000 colonists, support them for three years, and give them land. In each settlement were to be supported three priests, and to prevent discord, Huguenots were to be banished from New France. To Champlain, it must have seemed as if the ambition of his life were to be realized. Just when the sky seemed to be clearest, the bolt fell. Early in April 1628, the associates had dispatched colonists and stores for Quebec, but war had broken out between France and England. Gervais Kirk, an English Huguenot of Dieppe, France, who had been put under the ban by Cardinal Richelieu, had rallied the merchants of London 
to fit out privateers to wage war on new france the vessels were commanded by the three sons thomas louis and david and to the kirks rallied many huguenots banished from france quebec was hourly looking for the annual ships when one morning in july two men rushed breathless through the woods and up the steep rock to castle st louis with word that an english fleet of six frigates lay in hiding at tadousac ready to pounce on the french later came other messages indians fishermen traders confirming the terrible news then a basque fisherman arrives with a demand from kirk for the keys to the fort though there is no food inside the walls less than fifty pounds of ammunition in the storehouse and not enough men to man the guns champlain hopes against hope and sends the basque fisherman back with suave regrets that he cannot comply with monsieur kirk's polite request quebec's one chance lay in the hope that the french vessels might slip past the english frigates by night days wore on to weeks weeks to months and a thousand rumors filled the air but no ships came the people of quebec were now reduced to diet of nuts and corn then came indian runners with word that the french ships had been waylaid boarded scuttled and sunk loaded to the water-line with booty the english privateers had gone home for that winter quebec lived on such food as the indians brought in from the woods for the summer of sixteen twenty nine men women and children were grubbing for roots fishing for food ranging the rocks for berries there are times when the only thing to do is do nothing and it is probably the hardest task a brave man ever has when the english fleet came back in july champlain had a ragmuffin half-starved retinue of precisely sixteen men yet he haggled for such terms that the english promised to convey the prisoners to france on july twentieth for the first time in history the red flag of england blew to the winds above the heights of quebec but new france was only a pawn to the gamesters of french and english diplomacy peace was proclaimed and the for sake of receiving two hundred thousand dollars as dowry due to his french wife charles of england restored to france the half continent which the kirks had captured david kirk receiving the paltry honor of title as compensation for the loss champlain was back in quebec by sixteen thirty three but his course had run between christmas eve and christmas morning in sixteen thirty five the brave soldier of the cross the first knight of the canadian wildwoods passed from the sphere of earthly life a life without stain whether among the intriguing courtiers of paris or in the midst of naked license in the indian camp end of section six recording by linda marie nielsen vancouver bc